1: As Einstein says, you cannot solve the problem at the level of the problem. This capacity to heal and to hold and to forgive is incredibly important. And I think that that's the, the energy that gives us this as a tool to use for restorative justice, to restoring and uplifting the good in all of us. Mm-hmm.
2: Hi, this is Sharon Salzberg, and today I'm in conversation with Cecilia Loving. Cecilia is an award-winning speaker, diversity, equity, accessibility, and inclusion thought leader, consultant, and author. Her work focuses on restorative justice, storytelling, inclusive leadership, racial inclusion, mindfulness, and well-being. She's a senior vice president of diversity, equity, and inclusion at PBS with over 25 years of experience in DEI. Before joining PBS, Cecilia served as the New York Fire Department's Deputy Commissioner, Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer, and recently chaired the New York City Bar Association's First Committee on Mindfulness and Well-Being. Cecilia has practiced meditation since she was a teen in Detroit and is the author of several books, including The Power of Inclusion, and unbroken circles, holding space, finding forgiveness, and transcending edges. Welcome to you, Cecilia. It's such a pleasure to have you here on the Meta Hour. Thanks so much. I'm really grateful to be here. When I think of you, and I do think of you often with a smile, one of the first things I think of is that you're a very big practitioner of loving kindness meditation. So tell me more about how you first found meditation and what your path has been with it? Well,
1: one of the things you mentioned um, is that I have been practicing meditation since I was a teen, and that was in the early 70s, living in the inner city of Detroit. And uh, oftentimes I I sought refuge from uh, my surroundings and books and poetry, and often bought borrowed my mother's books. And so I confiscated one of her books that was called Mind and Master Power by Reverend Charles Roth. And that's a book of practical meditations and advice. And he introduced to me for the first time, this concept of God as the kingdom within us, what some call the indwelling Christ. And I believe that it was that study of mind, the master power, that really was a shift that changed the way I viewed the world. And so it was this time period, I I should mention, was also shortly after the Detroit riots and the assassination, Mm -hmm. we know, of the Kennedys and... Uh and Martin Luther King Jr, and so I was trying at the time also to make sense out of this concept of a nonviolent beloved community mm-hmm. at a time when violence appeared to be part of the energy of change, and so my mother had studied sewing with Rosa Parks. Mm. I, I always say she didn't learn how to sew, but she learned a lot about the civil rights movement and Mm -hmm. supplemented our public education with Black history. And at the same time, enrolled us in a course for youth at a place in Detroit called the Home of Love. And... It was led by a popular DJ there, the late Martha Jean, the queen, that was her radio handle. And she was a great influencer and supporter of blue-collar workers. Mm -hmm. But unbeknownst to many, she was also an advocate of the power of love and its healing power. And she taught us some things that are still the foundation of My practice, she taught us how to pray. She taught us how to use the power of affirmations and she taught us how to meditate. And so that was my foundation for years. I, a few years after that, I moved to Washington DC to attend Howard University and I would go to this bookstore in Georgetown called the Yes Bookstore. Mm -hmm which was a metaphysical bookstore. And that's what I use to continue to expand my research on meditation, reading books like the silence as yoga um, that really teaches how we lift our hearts beyond the limited conceptions of life so that we can breathe freely in the infinite expanse Mm. of spirit. And so I'll just I'll pause for there. Um, Right there, I was I was studying things like the prophet where Gibran teaches us that not only is God in our hearts, but really we are in the heart of God. And so um, that's sort of the. The journey that I was on, which is different than a number of people, because it didn't begin in in the Bible, what I call the ancient texts, mm-hmm. but it it took me there, and it gave me a different perception I think of God as as love, and that uh, we should focus not merely on teachings about Jesus, but really examine what Jesus taught. And so, you know, for example, one of the things that I tend to meditate on a lot is is a scripture from John 14 20, where he says, I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Mm. And I can meditate on that alone for
2: years. Mm, that's beautiful. In some funny way, it reminds me of this comment one of my early teachers made to me, and this is, of course, in a very different context, in a Buddhist context in India, Um, whereas this teacher, a man named Menindra, he looked at me and he said, the Buddha's enlightenment solved the Buddha's problem, now you solve yours. And it made it so clear it wasn't a question only of respecting the attainment of someone else, but embodying it, you know, becoming it. And it also felt, honestly, for me, the first time in my life, maybe somebody was looking at me as though to say, you can solve your problem. You can Mm. solve your problem, you know, the loneliness, the unhappiness, the fragmentation that's brought you here to India to begin with. You can do this. And that is very different than how most people perhaps have been conditioned to approach spirituality or religion, you know, which is really more about the attainment of another and the admiration of that rather than what about me, you know? Mm-hmm. It, which also reminds me of um
1: Eric Butterworth, who was one of the teachers who I studied under in the, in the eighties and the nineties when I was living in New York. And in one of his books, life is for loving. he, mentions that within every person there is a hunger and a thirst to be loved, to express love, and to let the infinite power of love flow through them.
2: And I want to mention your book here as well, The Power of Inclusion, Meditating with Compassion, Healing with Generosity, Leading with Love. How did that book come about? So... Um,
1: Thank you for that question. And one of the things that I wanted to do when I knew I was going to probably be leaving FDNY, and I wanted to sum up some of the things that I had learned in what I call the DEI, the Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion space, um, and so I was sort of spirit led to to write a book to summarize everything and to also lift up the importance of of love of of spirit of faith in this newly emerging field that focuses a lot on the intellect that focuses on the business case uh in order to convince. People that DEI is important. And so it looks at the profitability of organizations mm-hmm. as opposed to looking at its importance in our evolution as a people and how it helps our own well-being. And so mm-hmm. to me, inclusion really is the energy of love. And, um, in the book, one of the things that I mentioned is that without love, inclusion does not exist. And, and love embraces everyone as an extension of one family. Realize mm-hmm. that when one suffers, we all suffers. So, um, it's, it's, it's my testimonial of of the importance of, of DEI and how we can bring our whole selves to it. And also how we can use it as a catalyst to, to shape a holistic approach in leading DEI at organizations.
2: Well, I think that's really uh, tremendous because, uh, you know, I I read a lot these days about uh, resilience, you know, of all kinds of systems, of cities, of waterways, of people, of leadership, you know, all kinds of things. And something that seems to be growing in popularity and understanding is looking at the natural world for what allows, a, say, a forest to be resilient after there's been a fire. You know, what allows something to come back and not just come back in a kind of static way, you know, to where we were stuck before, but in an ongoing way in a generative way so that we're back, but we're growing and we're changing and we're adapting. And one of the things they always talk about in terms of the forest is diversity. You know, if only one type of thing had been growing in that particular stretch of forest, it's going to be much, much harder to find the conditions for flourishing to, to return, to renew. And, um, they talk about decentralized leadership, so to speak, um, you know, if if you're counting on, well, because um, there is apparently quite a bit of communication in the forest. Like, who knew? You know, I grew up in New York City too. Um, you know, but the uh, uh, the nature of things truly is there's a lot of communication, warning of danger, uh, reminding where nourishment can be found, and and so on. And and that needs to be decentralized. If it's held in one corner, you're going to be much harder, you know, to find the resources to begin again and to to start again. And it's so clear from the natural world that this is a picture of what will just make it a lot easier to not only survive, but flourish as we all face change all the time.
1: Yes, and um, you're also reminding me in lifting up the importance of that, of also the importance in general of our indigenous teachers. Mm-hmm. And the, uh, the work that is also reflected in my book, but one that I have really valued a lot, is the importance of all our relations and our ancestors, not merely being the people that, that we know and relate to because we've heard about them in terms of our family history, but the plants and the animals and our connection with all of, of life. And we've talked in the past about um, also circles mm-hmm. and the uh, the energy around healing circles and the importance of honoring all voices and holding the, the talking piece, which is an indigenous practice that has informed a lot of the work that I do in DEI. And um, I really not only honor the practice, but as my colleague Gina Liao and I always say, and she's someone who worked with me at FDNY and is a great circle keeper. We call circles the gift that keeps giving.
2: Do you want to describe circles a little bit for us? Sure. Circles
1: are... Uh, you can do them virtually or you can do them in person, of course, but it is that ancient tradition that comes from sitting elders sitting around the fire or just community connecting. And there is a talking piece. And the only person who can speak is the person holding the talking piece. And that piece is passed in one direction and it allows all voices to be heard. It is particularly important when it comes to deep listening and in sharing our stories and establishing that common ground upon stories that, that we all can relate to, but most importantly, it opens us up to see and to honor and to also be heard in a very different way. And so, And at FDNY, I started using this practice of circles, which are used a lot in restorative justice, uh, but also using them in in a different way to build community, to develop emotional intelligence, and uh, sometimes even to resolve conflict. So, you know, just to give you an example, we would hold courageous conversations, which we do also at, at PBS around issues that are important and very difficult to talk about. We also would hold uh, monthly circles that we call Bravest Women Talk so that we can allow all of those voices that might be unheard to to be heard. And at PBS, it, the circles are considered one of the most honored now and most radical ways that are changing and shifting and, and opening up new space and new energy to see each other in, in a different way, to hear and to also heal.
2: And you have another book, Unbroken Circles, called Holding Space. Finding Forgiveness, Transcending Edges, which is all about that, right?
1: Yes. So the uh, Upbroken Circles book I created after I was spending a great deal of time in circle and oftentimes would create poetry and openings and closings for a circle. And so that book really provides um, uh, the additional poetry and insights and openings that can be used by others in CIRCLE. The power of inclusion actually talks more about the process of CIRCLE and its importance in the DEI space.
2: Mm-hmm. It was very interesting, I, you know, as we started talking, just chatting, as we we're doing, you know, tech check and sound check and things like that. I had just been through a process that uh, my own retreat center that involved a circle. And I think I'd forgotten somehow in the course of being busy, you know, like and having a life I'd forgotten just the power of feeling heard because it's not a, um, an elaborate process really. It's very simple. And I think it takes some deep thinking to sort of feel like what's so powerful about it. You know, what does it seem to have such an effect? And it was, it was just very interesting because it's, I know as a as a teacher, and I think a teacher of anything goes through this, where you think, um, "What I'm offering is like a little too simplistic, or something." You know, it, it needs to be fancier, or, or you know, how am I going to ha- how is other, how are the people going to have confidence in it unless it's more elaborate and it's got more flourishes and things like that? And, but I think about the best teachers I've had uh, that I would feel were the best teachers, and they were very simple actually, and often repetitive. <laughs> strangely enough. Um, you know, and then I think about the process we just went through and I think, well, maybe one very powerful thing is just like, you got to say what you were feeling and nobody was like jumping on you and suggesting that you feel a different way. It it is so simple when, you know,
1: the, the circle keepers put the questions or prompts into the circle. And one of the, to me, most engaging prompts is simply, what do you need to say to be present? Or is there anything else that you need to put into the circle? And if you have those two props, basically you're equipped to to lead a circle. And I've been in circles where we've had a number of rounds simply around what do you need to say next? Mm And, um, just the way that you engage and open up and speak from the heart is so compelling. And I have led leaders in circle where just some very simple, basic prompts resulted in tears and shifts and vulnerability around what needed to be said and what needed to be heard, and just the opportunity to build community by building a safe container to share what was on their minds. one of the one of the other types of circles that i've done is actually in silence mm-hmm. and it is like having and i have in my office at pbs a basket of sticks and I learned from Elizabeth Clemens, uh, who also studied with Kate Pranis, both of whom are amazing circle keepers, the importance of using those sticks. And so what you do in the silence, and you have to be, do this physically, of course, is you you pass the talking stick, you walk into the center of the circle, and you place the sticks in just uh, amazing ways, whatever comes up for you. And then you pass it to someone else. And at FDNY, some of the uh, firefighters who I've been in circle with just did the most amazing displays of sticks. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, it, it's, it's something that is so simple, but
2: really builds, um, builds community. Well, wow, that's incredible. I wanted to ask you about a different kind of circle. I'm taking this one in for a moment, um, which is around restorative justice because uh, it, it's such a fascinating movement in criminal justice reform and um, speaks to, I think, how difficult it is for any of us as human beings to, uh, to understand that our actions have consequences and to feel those consequences and how important that is and coming to terms with with guilt and remorse and moving on and, or, or staying with, but what's happened and um, it it seems like a particularly potent place to have the process. So I'm wondering if you could say something about restorative justice.
1: Sure. I, I, I believe that the, This evolving process, as I mentioned, of, of humanity and the power of love and compassion is so incredibly important, no matter what the feel. And as you indicate, what te- takes us to one of the greatest tests is in our criminal justice system. And, and of course, some of the most powerful testimonials of Circle are with restorative justice and people who have been the victim of horrendous crimes, have had spouses killed, Mm. ended up being able to resolve them with the power of this healing process. And so as, as many of my fellow circle keepers say, there is power in the circle, or if there are issues that flare up, they say, let's just put it in the circle. And so there is something about the process and its accountability and and the oneness, I believe, that we all share, and just being able to hold space, to establish that common ground, to um, come to terms with the fact that not only are we, have many of us, or all of us, <laughs> rather been harmed, but we have also harmed others. Mm-hmm. And it is that process of having the capacity to love and to transcend whatever it is that we are feeling from an emotional aspect to lift ourselves up above the fray. As Einstein says, you cannot solve the problem at the level of the problem. This capacity to, to, to heal and to hold, and to forgive is is incredibly important. And I think that that's the the energy that gives us this as a tool to use for restorative justice, um, having been a lawyer and also at one point way back in my career, a criminal uh, attorney, you realize that, you know, it's a, it's a lose-lose situation, ultimately, when the focus is on punishing as opposed to, to restoring and uplifting the good in all of
2: us. Mm-hmm. Well, I can remember, you know, somebody was trying to uh, give me examples once years ago, and they had established this particular friend um, who since died. Tragically, but was um, at the time uh, she was an attorney. She had been a police officer for like twenty years or something like that, and uh, she was establishing some different novel kind of uh, analyses of criminal justice. So, for example, there was a youth court, and so if a young person committed an infraction that was not, you know, horribly serious, and not really severe, but was, you know, something that was not good. Um, They would be sentenced by really a community of their peers, you know, and maybe they'd be sentenced to music class or something like that. Uh, Something that you wouldn't really think of in a court of law. And um, it it was so interesting. And one of the things she was trying to explain to me was like, if you had robbed a store, uh, maybe your thought was, does it matter? The guy has a lot of money, you know, he misses payroll for one week and, it makes no difference. But then if you actually hear his story, maybe it did make a difference. Maybe his sister couldn't pay rent because he's been paying her rent and suddenly had no money for a week. And uh, because she couldn't pay rent, there were these consequences for her as a single mother. And then there was, you know, and it's like, we, we don't get it. You know, the circles with which we are interacting, we are connected and that actions are consequential. And, and it made a big difference to the kind of the maturity and the the development of these people to say, oh, it did make a difference. You know, what I do makes a difference.
1: Yes, it's so important when you look at the the creativity that we need in, in everything, and in particularly in the criminal justice system. Uh, when I was in New York, I had the opportunity to actually sit on the bench with, with jurors who were in some of the community courts Uh, in a variety, whether they were dealing with drugs or dealing with uh, prostitution that usually came up in the the court that's in the theater district, um, or they were dealing with some kind of marital dispute, the ability for the judge to exercise uh, something that was non-traditional, but helped really address uh, healing the harm in a different way was so incredibly important. And, um, circles, of course, are, are one of the most phenomenal ways that you do that. And particularly you being used in the schools as well. And I just want to lift up that there are also, restorative cities. Oakland is one. Detroit is is one. And as I was preparing to to leave New York, I was grateful that it appeared at the time that New York City was becoming one. And uh, my team and I were able to lead circles for the mayor's office, for our colleagues at some of the other city agencies, and also for some of the private uh, law firms and, and other places that wanted to engage in in healing in in a new way. So um, I'm really grateful for for you lifting up up the power of restorative justice and how it shows up in in a number of ways.
2: So the pandemic itself uh, has been a time of many reveals. We've sort of had the curtain pulled back on a lot of hidden aspects or more hidden aspects of our culture and the assumptions we live by. And at the same time, there's a lot of pushback against growth in the U.S. I'm wondering how you're seeing this effect in your work in DEI. Is there more of an opening to discuss things like systemic racism that wasn't there before COVID?
1: Oh, most definitely, um I, I think that there was work um that we did in DEI that was can al- almost be divided before and after George Floyd's death, in that uh that was really the I think the dividing point when there was a lot more accountability, there was a lot more now focus and commitment. To to DEI, I, I think that there's still a lot of fear, mm-hmm. but more of a willingness to push past that fear to to address the needs that uh, can no longer be ignored. Uh, for example, when I was at the fire department, I would say after post, um, you know, after George Floyd's death, there were uh, more. There was more of a commitment by the city in general to, to address the needs that were always there. And there were, I was on the mayor's task force. I established a task force on racial inclusion at the fire department. And there was a more willingness to do, to dig deep and do a root cause analysis Mm -hmm. around how did we, Get to this, you know, why do we have these particular problems? And then, most importantly, I believe a lot of leaders realize that DEI has to really um, report to the top so that there won't be interference and that one individual or office cannot be held accountable for everything that needs to be done in the DEI space, but that is the commitment of an entire organization. Mm -hmm. So all of these things, I believe, have been impacted by George Floyd and I love what his daughter said um uh, you know just a little girl who who said my daddy changed the world mm-hmm. and I think in many many respects his death uh most definitely did have a huge impact on our commitment to uh
2: to inclusion so through your work with the fire department I imagine you were working with police officers at the same time? I,
1: well, I did. And, and I also did some, some training for NYPD as well. And interestingly enough, a lot of firefighters are former police officers. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, you know, some of the training that I uh, did for, for NYPD uh, was, uh, in emotional intelligence, one of the last, I did four sessions on emotional intelligence when just before uh, COVID, before we were more sequestered and, and uh, stopped working um, physically mm-hmm. with um, some of the groups. And, and the interesting thing is I had officers uh, come up to me, literally some were almost bursting into tears mm-hmm. and said, this is just what I needed.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: um and so uh, at at FDNY, we were also, I believe, able to do uh, more in the mindfulness space than I experienced at NYPD, although I'm sure that's going to shift with the current mayor, who is Eric Adams, is very much committed to mm-hmm. to mindfulness. And so at the fire department, we were... You know, I was able to create the first mindfulness group, mindfulness newsletter, and as first responders, they use a lot of the practices in order to deal with with stress, and so they're using breathing techniques and um, affirmations and visualization and so I believe that they were because of those practices a little bit more open and receptive. I had to make sure they understood the nexus mm-hmm. between these. Um, powerful practices that they use in operations and how they also impacted judgment and implicit bias and all of those things that we focus on in the DEI space.
2: Yeah, that's that's wonderful. And it's it's tricky, you know, like, um, as you know, uh, I don't know if you could say we're post-pandemic, whatever place we're in with the pandemic. and of course this is being recorded at an earlier time than it will be played so there's even more uncertainty but um you know mental health is is taking a hit (laughs) in general and uh you're doing a lot of work with first responders and something that I've been drawn to for years and years now has been what we call I think uh in a misnomer really we call caregivers you know it's like people on the front lines of suffering, whether it's in their families or professionally who are dealing with the trauma of others and, and yet feeling uh, quite traumatized themselves. And so it's a very unusual arena because it's not often appreciated uh, the toll it takes.
1: Most definitely. And I think that, you know, the the trauma, particularly you know the vicarious trauma mm-hmm. that is impacted um, most definitely that comes up a lot in the first responder uh, space, as as well as is as, as those who are just dealing with with life and and all of its um, various challenges in general, particularly. Mm-hmm post-George Floyd and in the pandemic, I think that radical self-care is just a requirement for all of us. And I'm not a healthcare specialist per se, but... We have, and particularly in the DEI office, have always worked really closely with counseling services units at both FDNY and PBS. And with first responders, you definitely see the cynicism um, because they have to, to learn to wear the world as a loose garment. But you also see a lot of incredible faith. And support for one another. There, I experienced their really strong bonds of authentic trust Mm -hmm. and supportive relationships than you see in other environments because their lives are constantly at stake. And so, one of the other things that Uh, I often have to address and think about in the DEI space is the radical self-care that's required for us. And I think it's not just one group. I think it's all of us who carry the trauma of our ancestors. Mm -hmm. And um, I think we carry the the baggage of both those tortured and the torturers, Mm -hmm. those who have been enslaved and the enslavers. Um, and so on. And so one of the things that I'm, I'm grateful that I was able to learn before my mother passed away this year is that one of my ancestors, uh, one of our, our uncles, great uncles was lynched. And as a world and a country and a community, we carry this harm in our bones. And so mm. the challenge in the DEI space and just in general is to build the capacity to heal and to do the work that's necessary for healing and find that that common ground and build upon it mm-hmm. a new world of love and of patience and of grace.
2: And It's very encouraging that you're saying you're finding people doing just that. Yes,
1: yes, most definitely. And it it takes a while, I think, for us to realize what's necessary Mm -hmm. and to bring our whole selves to what needs to be done in a way that um, allows us to do so without fear. And, and that's really, I think, the, the challenge, the, the daily challenge that, that we're confronted with. And once again, it's those, those circles or opportunities, um, to, to relate to each other in a way that is authentic and allows us to see each other and to hear each other, to listen in, um, in a, in a new way that is so incredibly important
2: in this space. Well, one of the things that I saw working with, um, caregivers, which began with domestic violence shelter workers, um, was an incredible sense of isolation. And so community as perhaps the most powerful healing agent was also a little remote, you know, like, even though people were in the same line of work, it felt like, uh, they couldn't really talk about what they were experiencing. It was like, uh, even though they were all doing the same kind of things, although in different shelters, it was not only for the sake of confidentiality, but it was both the appearance that they felt they had to uphold, which was somebody who gave more than they got. You know, that they were strong, they were invincible, they were um, there to help others, they were there to save others. and uh, That was a part of it, and part of it was that the stories were just so painful, you know, and often evoked their own previous trauma or unhappiness or, or something. And so people were not in the habit of actually creating community in a funny way.
1: Yeah, it's, and you, one of the things that I'm really grateful for is that um, I learned circle keeping in large part with an organization called Hidden Water. And its focuses on, um, the sexual abuse that have been suffered by, by children. And so, um, it taught me to, to hold space and to listen and to, to be a healing influence for, for some of the most horrendous, um, experiences and, um, just the, to have the the capacity and the willingness and the commitment to be an energy of, of love. And that's one of the things I love about, you know, the work that you do, Sharon, in, in loving kindness. And um, I, I worked at the human rights commission in, in New York before I went to the fire department. And one of the things that I was grateful to realize is that the energy that I brought just by having a a practice of of loving kindness meditation was so incredibly important. And so I could, it was the presence that I brought and the witness that that was also provided an energy of healing and restoration. And I remember a young man Uh, coming into the office and at that time, it didn't matter whether or not you had an appointment. You could just walk in off the street Mm. with a complaint. And this, and he was a member of the LGBT community and, um, he was just shaking all over. And I just calmly said to him, breathe let's just breathe. Mm. And and I realized that the merits of those cases didn't matter, but it was being heard. Mm -hmm. That was so incredibly important. And so... I often tell our circle keepers and others in the DEI space, a lot of the preparation for the work that we do comes long before we enter the room. And it's centering ourselves in that compassion and in that energy of love and realizing that sometimes we can walk into a space and and just be a presence and a witness, with that energy of love. And it's, it's, it's sending out that loving energy when when you pass someone or when you see someone or when you hear about something that is also important in, in this sort of ministry of love that we call DEI. That's a lovely term for
2: it, the ministry of love, DEI.
1: Yeah, that's what it is for me. Um, and I, I think that we are hesitant about calling it it love because, you know, it sits in the, the, the business world. But essentially, that is what it is. It is in embracing everyone and seeing everyone
2: and uplifting everyone despite differences. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's so crucial, you know, because it's like the... The path we think we're going to take to healing is often, for some of us, it's not actually a path to healing. And uh, something I've talked about on this podcast a lot with various guests is how sometimes we think that shame is really the root. And um, yet, you know, the worse we feel about ourselves, the kind of less energy we tend to have to try to make change. We're just so demoralized and we feel hopeless. And, And I've heard psychologists we're currently say things like, um, uh, "This one said the brain filled with shame cannot learn." Mm. Of course, our goal is learning. It's behavior change. It's being a different person, which mm. we are capable of being. Uh, and so, not just falling into that sort of, uh, you know, pit of self hatred as a path, thinking it's going to work. It takes a very particular kind of understanding.
1: And, and just that, you know, what you just explained was was a real light bulb that went off for me when I first started studying with Elizabeth Clements um, around circle keeping at, at and she has an organization called Planning Change, which, which teaches circle keeping. And the one of the most valuable lessons that I learned was the importance of of how shame impacts us. And in the DEI space, there often is a tendency to blame and shame mm-hmm. and guilt. And that's one of the reasons I start off with a practice of, of teaching emotional intelligence through through circle and, and lifting up the importance of having compassion for everyone, because you just cannot do the work that needs to be done
2: uh, without that. I think that's really great. and The people haven't asked me about the extent to which I um, imagine people experience vicarious trauma. For example, this recent question came in. uh, Do journalists get it? What do I think? So I'm going to pass it on to you.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that anyone has the potential to have vicarious trauma if they're serving in such a way that there's just the repetition of of stories and harm and uh most certainly and you know once again i i think that um the the radical self-care is so necessary for all of us in the various ways that that trauma may show up in in our lives and and oftentimes i think we're not even conscious of it but mm-hmm. um we have to do the the work and and uh we have to have the practices that center us in the power and presence of of love and compassion for one another
2: wonderful let's do it (laughs) (laughs) that's that's really great because you are you know you're in a media world now and uh I've certainly met journalists, um, not only those who've gone to war, but definitely those who've gone to war, uh, who are really suffering a lot and struggling with um, the complexity, you know, of of uh, views and knowledge and and just the hurt that we can inflict on ourselves and on one another. And so, um, I, I can't really think of an arena of life where it doesn't figure somewhere.
1: Yeah, and you mentioned the the media world and it's it's interesting how times have changed and many of us just in our daily lives become part of of the media of of social media mm-hmm. and and that um impact which is not even governed by you know the same rules as um as other types of more established media and so um, you know there's just this constant vigilance that we have to uh to have in in terms of staying centered and um and practicing what what we call in the more traditional space practicing the presence of of spirit mm-hmm. And I you know, I guess it doesn't really matter uh what your theology is, as Nhat Han said that there are some Buddhists who are more Christian than Christian, and mm-hmm. some Christians who are more Buddhist than Buddhists. Mm-hmm. It is mm-hmm. practicing the presence of of love
2: mm-hmm. That's beautiful, So before we finish, I'm wondering if you could lead us in a guided practice of some kind to to bring the conversation to a close. Thank you so much. I'd be honored to do so.
1: And so I just like to invite the listeners, if it's available to you, just to close your eyes. Just center on the presence and power. Just of the breath. Just breathe into that energy of love and light, just regardless of the sounds that are going on around you. And just connect with that energy of breath and the power and presence of love that continues to give birth to us. That gave birth to us from the beginning of time. And just feel that love as though it embraces your entire being, your body. Every cell and every molecule of who you are, everything that expresses in, as, and through you, filling every muscle and every organ. And in the energy and awareness of this love and how it breathes us. Let's just center on a time before religion, before the expression of all that we are today and just see ourselves pulsating from the first being or beings that ever were. From our mothers, 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 mothers. From our fathers, 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 fathers. Thousands of years ago, and realize that the breath of our four beings was the energy of love and feel the strength and the compassion and the connection with that energy of love Love is a, as a divine connection to all our relations that ever were. Love connecting the plants, the sun, the grass, Every color, every reflection, every direction. And just feel the expanse of that love in which you live and move and have your being. That freedom, that liberty of everything and everyone. and also nothing and no one and nowhere. In this connection, Just resonate if you can, just with love. And feel it breathing through you as a single breath. And then another and another and another and feeling that connection between each and every being whoever was or ever will be And realizing this connection, this oneness is something that we all share from our mothers, 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 mothers. And our fathers, 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 fathers. Bringing us to this moment and to this breath and to this energy and this awareness. And so it is, so let it be. Whenever you're ready You'll flutter open your eyes if they were closed and return
2: again to the present moment. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for the beautiful meditation and for joining me today. To learn more about Cecilia's work, you can visit www.mindfulnessgroup.blog. It's www.mindfulnessgroup.blog. N-E-S-S-G-R-O-U-P dot blog, B-L-O-G. Or check out her many book offerings. Big thanks to everyone who's listening. This has been the Meta Hour podcast from the Be Here Now Network. May you be safe, be happy, be healthy, and may you live with ease.
0: Hey folks, thanks for listening. To learn more about Sharon and her ongoing teaching schedule, as well as online courses and a free guided meditation, check out her website at SharonSalzberg.com.